In this episode of Tasting Anarchy, we're joined by Pepper at Wine and Liberty on Twitter. Pepper is an active libertarian, and we discuss wine and the wine industry in and around Indiana. Enjoy the show. And that's that. When you're starting out, it's hard to tell high-quality wine from a bottle of Plunk. It can also get really expensive. Boy, have I found that out lately by looking at my bank statements. I did a lot of research to find a better way to buy quality wine without breaking the bank, and that's how I discovered an awesome website called Last Bottle Wines. Last Bottle Wines has fostered personal relationships with wineries across the world and offer one bottle of high-quality wine a day at 30 to 70% off. When the bottle is gone, it's gone. New day, new bottle, new savings. I recently ordered a Spanish Tempranillo. This wine normally retails for $74, and I got it from Last Bottle Wines for only 32 bucks. It's not a wine club, so there's no fees. Shipping is affordable and can even be free. You know Mason and I are always after the best wines at the best price. We want you to enjoy the same deal. That's why we got you this special offer. Some of our listeners have already taken advantage of the deal and are loving the experience. All you need to do is go to lastbottlewines.com slash invite slash tasting anarchy to get $10 off your first purchase while helping your favorite Wine and Liberty podcast. That's lastbottlewines.com slash invite slash tasting anarchy to get $10 off a delicious bottle of wine at 30 to 70% off. Down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When you get the wrong, start singing all night, drinking wine's for the to drink wine. Wine's for the to drink wine. Wine's for the to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Welcome to Tasting Anarchy. This is your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by the co-host, Mason Joseph. This week, we have a very special guest from Indiana, which has got a lot of, I don't know if this is surprising to most of our listeners or not, maybe as surprising as it is that there's a wine coming out of Texas, but Indiana actually has a, a growing and thriving wine market, and our guest, Pepper, hails from Indiana, and she's going to uh, join us in on the conversation of, I guess, what's going on in the Great Lakes region, and, uh, well, actually, it's, it'll it'll kind of go over a lot of the United States that is not well known for wine, uh, because one of the topics I kind of wanted to get into with you guys was hybrid grapes, and I did a little bit of research. One of the... Um, one of the grape varietals that Pepper you shared with me that you really like is uh, I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna butcher this so I, I should apologize for this in advance mm-hmm. but um, you told me that you like Ag- Aglianoc uh, can you say it, Pepper Aglianico 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 okay Aglianico uh-huh. and then the other one Traminette Traminette that's okay. that's that sounds right I was gonna say like Traminette or something <laughs> yeah. But, uh, it's, it's actually the uh, it's actually the Indiana State wine. Yeah, I, I read it that is on made there. by grapes that were um, I guess uh, created at Purdue University in Lafayette, Indiana, and and so they're our own grapes grown in our own soil, and uh, it's a pretty good wine. It's white wine. It's, it's 
off dry. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a pretty good wine. Yeah, well, I was reading about it and that it is uh, a hybrid, um, a hybrid with a French American hybrid, which they said was like undeterminate. And uh, mm-hmm. Mason, one that you like is Gewürztraminer, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. German white, and a lot of people describe it as as tasting very much like that. Now, yes, um, there's a wi- there's a winery here in uh, Indiana, Tui's Winery, that actually. Um, sells that, and we just call it groovy because no one can pronounce it properly. And so they just they just started advertising it as groovy wine. And then when you go in there, you order groovy wine. Okay, groovy wine. That, that I like that. Yeah. Well, I, after you mentioned to me the two E's on Twitter, I went on into their website. And actually, Mason, you know how you and I always complain about how most wineries have terrible websites? Yes. This this winery actually has a really good website. <laughs> it's a, yeah, they do. Yeah, it's, it's very clear. It advertises the services that they have. Uh, Mason, you may find this interesting. They make uh, wines out of uh, Concord grapes. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, I've never had that. That's, very, that's really interesting to me. I have yeah. not either. Mm-hmm. So we actually have their most popular wine is Plonk. And it's a very sweet wine, and it is made out of Concord grapes, and it's a huge, huge hit. With I think people are people now can order um, the Plonk wine from Tui's and have it shipped to people in Indiana. They can't ship it out of the state, but you can you can order it if you live in Indiana and have it shipped to you. So that's a new thing, and that was pretty exciting. Yeah, that is it's pretty yeah. cool. That's one of the things that we're probably going to get into in the show today is about the shipping laws for uh, direct direct wine sales because a lot of those that legislation well not legislation but the um lawsuits are coming out of indiana but first i kind of wanted to um just kind of go over who you are pepper because i i sort of derailed that and botched the introduction Mm -hmm. (laughs) it just got right into (laughs) talking about wine but uh you know, you were introduced to me by a mutual friend online, and uh, you're part of the Big L Libertarian. You're uh, mm-hmm. Wine and Liberty on Twitter, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And so, like I said, you're from the Great Lakes region. What What else would you like to tell us about yourself? Because I'm just kind of curious, like, how did you get involved in the Liberty Movement, and how did you become Wine and Liberty? How did you make that association? <laughs> Well, I got involved in the Liberty Movement mostly um, when Ron Paul ran for president um, back when Bush was nominated. Um, and um, I, I thought it was pretty crazy at the time. And um, some of the things he said I thought were just way out there. And so I started looking into some of the things he was saying, especially about foreign policy and Iran and how we got involved in that whole mess over there. And it, he turned out to be, in my view, correct. And so I, I kind of went off into this whole this whole where I just couldn't identify with the Republicans anymore. Um, I spoke for the Libertarian Party in 2015 in Indiana, the Indiana Libertarian Party. I was a guest speaker for how to get women involved in the liberty movement because women tend to to shy away from libertarianism. Um, and then in 2016 or 2018, no, it was 16, I actually ran for office hmm. and I did lose. I ran against a... Um, Jim Banks, our district, Indiana, mm-hmm. and um, he is a Republican. I ran against a Democrat who endorsed Trump, and um, he was homeless, and he lived in a hotel room, and, and he collected Social Security, and he had some pretty interesting interviews of him drinking beer and reading the Bible with porn playing in the background. And so the Libertarian Party approached me thinking it, it, it might be a, a good um <laughs> shot at at least beating the Democrat and being that that in that top tier, or, you know, two party 
anything. And um, due to uh, straight party voting, that, that just didn't happen. This individual that was nominated for the Democrat Party was actually um, shared a name of a prominent Democrat in the area. So people thought they were voting for him. Oh. And so I lost. Um, I did get 20,000 votes in the third district, which is a record. That's pretty high, um, yeah. I don't know that I'm going to run for office again, but um, I, I'm married. I have, I've been married for two and a half decades. Um, we have seven children. My husband had three daughters. He had custody of them when we got married. And then we went on to have four children together. We have one boy out of the whole bunch. Um, we have three Great Danes and a Samoyed. Um, we're pretty busy. We both work. We raise kids. We raise dogs. And we have chickens. And I love wine. Um, my area has a winery. We used to live five minutes from it. And we bought a house about 30 minutes from it. So that was kind of kind of sad. But but we um pretty excited about our winery out here. It's a fascinating winery. It's really neat looking. It's neat to go there. They have lots of concerts there and, and lots of events going on but you can go over there and buy wine um but you know i i like wine i like liberty i i don't I don't know that there's a, a chance that um, libertarians can can win in this atmosphere with mm-hmm. what's going on. Everyone is so polarized, and and um, so I I kind of and I hate to say this, but I've kind of just thrown up my hands in politics because I, I I see the country is just spiraling out of control almost. So, but that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, wow, that sounds good. And just, I just real quick for the listeners, because not all states have this. The street voting, the street party voting, is where mm-hmm. you're allowed to just mark Democrat or Republican at the top of the ticket, and yeah. it'll just vote for all of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You that, just go you, you don't even have to know the names of the people you were voting for. You yeah. just go in there that's and just, yeah. Republican leave the building, Democrat leave the building, and that's it. That's so strange. That, that sounds yeah. as as insane to me as the recent thing where most of the heavy blue leaning states are trying to change it so that their um, um, what's it called uh, electoral college votes yeah. go. Yeah immediately to the national winner doesn't matter what happens in their state so it's like trump's coming for your democracy <laughs> yeah well i actually talked to people who um who later on after the election i talked to them and, and they learned some of my views and, and i told them i ran and they said well i voted for democrats because of trump and i'm like well you voted for this guy right here <laughs> and they were flabbergasted <laughs> that they voted for this this guy who's not anyone that they would have normally voted for um, but yeah, that's I, in my view, I, I hate straight party voting. I think it, it it's part of what's wrong with this yeah. country. Well, it's very it's very corrupt. It. it seems very corrupt. Yeah, uh, and and very you know we used to have something similar. Mason and I were involved with libertarians in Virginia Beach. I think me a little bit more than you, Mason. But Correct. um, but they had uh, something very similar where they were trying to, where they had it, it was it wasn't straight party voting, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't break. So, like, basically, you would run in. Let's let's say, like, Mason. This will make more sense for you. But like, you ran in the Beach District or whatever. Mm-hmm. But not only Beach District people are voting for that person. You can like, there's like, you can vote all like in wide areas. So. One of the things that the Libertarian Party there was involved in trying to do is to get borough voting instead so that you and your district would be voting for your city rep instead of it just being the entire mm-hmm. city voting for the rep for your area, which like that it mm-hmm. didn't make any sense. There was, there was a lot of weird stuff like that going on. I don't think – I think they actually tried to do straight party voting in Virginia at one point and it was it was defeated. Uh, yeah, I think it's been defeated every time it's been tried. Um I don't know if it's been I don't think it's ever passed and then been like struck down. Right. But yeah, so 
just so people are aware, in Virginia, it's one of the few city or few states in the country that has independent cities. So like Virginia Beach doesn't, it, there's no county. And yeah, where yeah. I live in Norfolk, there's no county. So in huh. Virginia Beach, there was always this weird thing where like, I never really thought about it until after somebody brought it up at the meetings is like in Virginia Beach, Virginia Beach like has its own ways of subdividing the city. And one of the things is they'll say boroughs, but then like you only really learn about that in like third grade and then like randomly during voting time. Cause like, then mm-hmm. they'll, you know, talk about neighborhoods and stuff like that. Virginia Beach is the area wise, not the largest city in Virginia, but population is the largest city in Virginia. So like it's 400,000 people and you could be voting like very close to like this small little section in the city that's way different than like the north end of the beachfront or something like that and yet you get to vote for who directly represents them for some reason and it's like a complete like i mean jacob this makes more sense to you but like you know chesapeake or uh, kemsville is way different than the north shore yeah. of virginia beach which is like you know north shore is like a you know in our area like in virginia beach there's there are million dollar homes but it's very rare so it's like six hundred thousand dollar homes which is an area that the medium home price is probably like three hundred thousand and yeah one is like literally the North Shore of the Atlantic Ocean, and the other is like swampy. <laughs> well, yeah, like... yeah. I mean, I, I, and that's one of the things that you know. I used to live down near Kempsville, or I live in Strawbridge, or whatever. But that's I think that Pepper kind of empathizes with this in general because it's just a one of the difficult things for liber- libertarians is um, is that in general is that the way that that the structures are set up is it makes it very very difficult to enter. It makes it really difficult to beat incumbents, and then the additional layer on that is difficult to defeat a democrat or a republican so you've got mm-hmm. like like it's like multiple tiers of added difficulty so especially especially now when everyone's so polarized that you've got this mindset that you've got to keep democrats out so i have to vote republican yeah you've got to keep republicans out so i've got to vote democrat so there's no in between ground there's no looking at issues there's no looking at um, individuals it's just this this party mentality and it's very frustrating yeah well that's well, i mean like- Go ahead, Mason. Like, Jacob, this, I was going to say, this is the, the classic thing that I've talked about for years now, and I've talked about it on the show several times, is um, so both Jacob and I um, are young enough to basically, you know, our first real president was Clinton, but like the first president when you're kind of having these real big ideas, George W, or, you know, the W. So, right. Like that one, like his, his and Al Gore's election is the last time I remember planks being an important thing and Mm -hmm. not just the Republican ticket. And they're like, right. Wait a minute. And and it's, it's so crazy. The issues are so, um, I I guess it's either, you know, this way or the highway. There's no common ground between parties anymore. There's no common grounds, even within the Republican party or within the Democrat, you're, you're either this extreme mentality or this extreme mentality or you're um, left behind, I guess. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what, you know, Mason and I came to this realization a while ago, especially since we kind of went down the anarchists like Murray Rothbard, Mary Ruert uh, path, is what is a different way other than politics that we can try to reach people. And that's one of the reasons why we started this wine, this wine show is um, that – there's a lot of people who are interested in wine and they don't they often don't realize how involved the government is with their wine um, and how mm-hmm. difficult it can be for um, you to get the wine that you want or you know the, a good a really good example of this is uh, recently I sent Mason some wine from te- or I'm sorry I allegedly I don't know what the correct legalese is for this but <laughs> I tried to send you sent me some 
fancy kombucha. Yeah, there we go. I said okay. I, I said sent Mason some fancy kombucha in the mail, and mm-hmm. uh, the reason I sent kombucha instead of wine is because you can't ship wine from Texas mm-hmm. to Virginia without all sorts of special licenses, and it's it's mm-hmm. it's multiple things. It's it's the, it's the federal law, but it's also state laws in a lot of places that that prevent that. And I think this is one of the reasons why. Um, probably like wine regions such as Indiana is a good example uh, are not more popular than they are. And I know that like Michigan's starting to grow and starting to like catch people's attention and stuff like that. But like when I was doing research for this show, Indiana's got a lot of stuff going on. And mm-hmm. let me let me go through a couple of these uh, that they said these are the the hybrid grapes that Indiana does really well. And I'm I'll re- I'll read them off real quick, and you can tell me, Pepper, if you've heard of them before. Uh, the first one I okay. know I know you've heard of this one because we just talked about it. It was the Traminette. Um, mm-hmm. Am I saying that correct, Traminette? Yes, you are. Okay. Then the there's another one called Noret, and that is a red. And I guess the goal of this was to get Apparently, I didn't know this, and this maybe is why uh, our friend Jackson Blood has had such a negative attitude toward hybrids, is I guess a lot of hybrid American hybrid grapes have this um, muskiness or gaminess to them that a lot of people don't mm-hmm. care for. So they when they bred the Norwet uh, in New York uh, at one of the New York colleges, I don't remember which one, and uh, the goal was to get rid of those aromas, the gaminess and the muskiness, but still to produce a a nice flavored red. There's also uh, Marquette, which is a yes. which was developed in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently that was that's a very new one that was introduced in 2006. The goal of this grape was to develop a more cold hardy grape because it gets cold in Indiana, gets cold in mm-hmm. Minnesota for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, the way that, that it was described online was that it's kind of like a cross between a Pinot Noir and a Merlot. It, that's kind of the taste. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have any of that gaminess or muskiness. And it's starting to win a lot of awards and stuff because people didn't realize that you could do this with hybrids. Uh, mm-hmm. This is an older one. I don't know. Have you had this one before? Uh, Pepper, I looked for this to to do for the show because I wanted to try a hybrid, and I can't find them anywhere in the Dallas area. Uh, it's called uh, Chamberson. Have you ever? No, heard of I that? have not. Okay, apparently they grow a lot of that in Indiana. Um, I mean, I, I know we have our homegrown. We we actually had the Marquet wine with a homegrown Hoosier grape oh, from really? Purdue again. Oh, and it's it's a very dry wine, and it has. Um, it, it does not have that muskiness. I'm not real fond of it, um, mm-hmm. and I really like really dry wines, but it's not one of my favorites. But no, I haven't heard of the other one. What did you call it again? Uh, I'm, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. Chamberson. Chamberson. C H A M B O U R C I N. Chamberson. I mean, like one of the things that we're famous for is not pronouncing anything close to that. Well, this this one's actually a really old hybrid. Apparently, it was it was huh. developed in 1860, and they they were using it a lot to uh, fill out other white wines or other red wines. Um, mm-hmm. Or actually, I could be getting that wrong. Is it is it a, a white or is it? I don't know what what type it is, but I guess they were using it to fill out other wines. 
And then okay. uh, recently, the Germans started picking it up because they were like, oh, it's cold in Germany, and there's this American hybrid that we could use, and it produces a good wine. Um, let's let's do it. And so they've started doing it. It's starting to pick up and make some award, get some awards and stuff. I just read online that Indiana has has some of their acreage under uh, this this type. And I wonder if maybe because there because there are a lot of hybrids and stuff like that, that people put their own names on them. Uh, it's it's a red, by the way, Jacob. It is red. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. There's another one called man. I can't read this one. Mason, you want to try the next one? Uh, let me try. Um, Marcel. Marcel. Marcel Fouch. Yeah. M A R E C H A L. There's an accent mark mark over the E. <laughs> have, have you heard of that? I have one? Not heard of that one okay. either. I have not. Uh-uh. Okay, interesting. Okay, so that's another one that they they bred to make it a cold hardy grape, and apparently it's very reminiscent of uh, Beaujolais. Okay, uh, which is interesting. Um, no, I have not heard of that one. Okay. And you said that that is one that that's sold in Indiana. These are the four that they said grow well in Indiana. I don't know how much okay. Indiana is doing them. So it seems like it seems though that like uh, the Traminette, like when I was just looking for wines from Indiana, which none of them are available mm-hmm. here for whatever reason, but. Uh, it seems like in in Indiana, everybody's growing that uh, Traminette. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's a pretty popular wine here. Um, I know we have five distributors in Indiana, and you can't ship it unless you go through these distributors. Um, like Tui's can't sell wine directly to say Target to sell wine. Mm. They have to sell it to the distributor, and then the distributor has to sell it to Target, and then Target um, sells it and gives the distributor money and Tui doesn't see that money after they sell it to the distributor they just get what the distributor gave them right. for the wine okay <laughs> so that makes sense so then this is this kind of yeah. this kind of brings us up to uh the the articles that i had so there there's two articles that are going on right now right now um I don't know how popular this this wine or this wine store is in. Uh, it's from Fort Wayne, Indiana. How close are you to Fort Wayne? Mm-hmm. Is that pretty close? We are twenty minutes away from Fort Wayne. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there's a Very there's close. there's a, a store there called Cap in Cork. So it's C A P N yeah. with a little apostrophe Cork. And apparently that's mm-hmm. a very big wine distributor or wine retailer in Indiana. And they're allowed right. to do direct to consumer sales and ship the wine to them in the state of Indiana. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they want to do is uh, they want to do a, a similar thing in Michigan and a similar thing in Illinois, but the laws in Michigan and Illinois prevent them from shipping wine direct across state lines. And mm-hmm. so they have brought um, they brought lawsuit against Michigan and they brought lawsuit against Illinois. In Illinois, it's the Liquor Control Act of 1934, which requires that producers must sell alcohol and have it shipped through a distributor and be sold by an official retailer with a physical location in the state. So in order for Captain Cork to be able to sell direct to consumers in Illinois, they would have to locate uh, at least some retail locations in Illinois. And the Michigan law is similar. This is a lot of like leftover prohibition law. And uh, and it sounds like Indiana probably has something similar as well, where if you're in the state, it's not a problem. But when you're out of the state, it's a problem. And so yeah. according to Captain Cork, they're trying to like, quote unquote, cut out the middleman. And this could result in nearly $227 million 
uh, in reduction in excise taxes generated by the distributors in Illinois. So obviously the, the politicians in Illinois have an incentive to prevent this from happening. Um, and But the owners of Captain Cork, his name is uh, Labamoff, uh, he says uh, about 10% of their sales are online, but only in the state of Indiana. They would like to expand their uh-huh. business by selling in Illinois and Michigan, but right now they're prevented and they would like to expand their online sales. So I don't know about you, Pepper. This is an interesting topic to me because I'm kind of of two minds on this. I'm, I am usually a state's rights guy. And uh-huh. in this case, you know, is as ridiculous as the law seems to me in Illinois and Michigan, I don't think that this is really a federal matter. This to me seems no, it's, more... it's not a federal matter. I think it's definitely a, a citizens in your state matter. I, yeah. I mean, this brings up a, a an issue a couple of years ago where um, I believe it was J.C. Penney was putting these cards in people's um, bags as part of some kind of um, sale propaganda thing, and it was it was a wine card. It was a hundred dollar gift certificate for this um, this month one of those monthly wine companies, mm-hmm. and so you know I was excited. Um, I, I got home, I called the number, and they said, you live in Indiana, we, we can't send this to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why would I freaking be handing it out in JCPenney in Fort Wayne, Indiana, if we can't even use it? Yeah. And so it's just, yeah, and I, I don't know what state they were out of, but they, they, they said we can't ship wine to Indiana. And so it was a $100 certificate that we could not use. Um, I thought about sending it to... <laughs> other people outside of the state um, and have them order the wine and ship it to Indiana. But then that's another, probably a federal crime. So I didn't even go through that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, Indiana laws, um, we just now got Sunday sales. It took forever. Wow. And it was a big, big battle. And it was um, liquor store lobbyists did not want Sunday sales. Um, They made the excuse that it would would force them to open on Sunday and um, would take business away from them. Um, One of the the big supporters of it were were wineries, oddly, because that was the only place you could buy, you know, other than restaurants. You can Mm -hmm. go to a winery and you can buy a bottle of wine at a winery on Sunday, but you could not go to, say, your grocery store or a liquor store to buy a bottle of wine or or beer or whatever and that recently just changed and it was it, it was crazy um but it finally happened and we can finally buy wine on sunday in indiana from i think until 8 p.m and then after that they cut you off remace mm. <laughs> you remember now, do you guys have well real quick so yeah. do you guys have independent liquor stores in indiana yeah, we, yes we do we have independent liquor stores and um they were the the big supporters of, of keeping um um, Sunday sales from happening and they were the ones that lobbied our um, politicians and that finally um, the people and it was also this thing with um, we had this gas station who kind of skirted around the law so that they could sell um, cold beer on Sundays because you're not allowed <laughs> to do that either okay? oh, weird. so you're not allowed to do that still um, in fact when they finally gave us Sunday sales they specifically worded it so that this gas station would still not be able to do that because they pissed off the um, government because they they skirted around they looked at the wording and they they figured out a way to do it and they did it and um, <laughs> the government put a stop to it <laughs> so they, they gave us our Sunday sales but they made sure that that, that gas station suffered mm, that's funny that is that's very funny so Mason do you remember well actually Pepper you know in Virginia where Mason and I used to live. I live in Texas now, but uh, one of the weird liquor laws that 
that was going on there was that the state controls liquor sales. So I just realized that that was a thing a, a few years ago. I had no <laughs> idea that the state control and it's the same <laughs> in Pennsylvania too, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I forget. Like I know North Carolina has ABC stores. Um, I'm pretty sure Pennsylvania does as well. Uh, cause my cousin's, uh, used to live in Pennsylvania and they would, uh, often make runs to like total wine in Delaware, which was, you know, right. an hour and a half away. Um, mm-hmm. because there was like some weird sale laws too. And Delaware's, you know, like completely open on a lot of stuff. <laughs> it was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Come to us, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so that, that's just crazy. I mean, how exactly does that work that the government runs your liquor businesses? Mason, you, uh, you so, probably know more about it than I do. I, I, I don't drink liquor almost at all. Yeah, so basically there's a threshold of alcohol content, um, and it varies. Like, So in Virginia, like beer can't be over a certain percentage alcohol uh, before it's classified as something weird. And then, you know, <laughs> it's there's a there's a, a the brewery called Dogfish Head. We did a my favorite beer from them, which is called 120 Minute, um, a couple weeks ago on the show. Um, but one of the things is it got banned in Virginia for several years because its alcohol range went from like you know 17 percent to 25 just because of the way they brewed it, and you know they didn't uh-huh. really try to control it. But Virginia's like, no, it's got to be capped at 22. And being a Delaware brewery, you know the big market is was a big market is Virginia compared to Delaware. So they like refine the process, but like in Virginia, so like after prohibition and as like some sort of holdover, they came up with this rule basically that the state would sell liquor and like, it's just, you know, the state ABC store. And, you know, what, as a kid, they're like in, a bunch of different shopping centers and it just says ABC store. And like the idea, like, cause my wife is from California that you could just go to the grocery store and buy, you know, handles and handles of liquor. <laughs> never, uh-huh. Like never crossed my mind as a kid. So, um, you know, they basically buy and distribute and, you know, and classic thing. Like people always make fun of the people who work at the liquor store. And now like, and Jacob and I will oh, yeah. often make fun of state employees, but every time I've ever been to the liquor store, they've always been super helpful. Like, and very nice and, you know, seem to know everybody and kind of, you know, they, they seemed it, it like they probably couldn't run a successful business on their own, but they seem like good employees, which kind of always right. surprised me. I'm like, what is this? How are these guys so good? Well, I know that Utah has some crazy law. Well, they have quite a few crazy laws, but one of them is their alcohol content is super low. It has to remain super low. It was crazy. You have to buy like, um, you have to drink like four beers to get the effect of one normal beer or something it's, crazy it's, like that. Uh, it's different now. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you produce outside of the state, there's a limit. But like in the state, like some of the beers like they produce have like a different like they they do have some higher production alcohol content. Ones. I, f- I forget how they're doing it, but it's okay. like the laws change slightly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think. Well, Go ahead. I'm sorry. At least we don't have state wine in Indiana. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, and, that, and I think that Virginia is uh, is lucky that they don't have. Although there's a lot of taxes in Virginia for wine because it's it, mm-hmm. the, the, as soon as you go over, I think 11 percent alcohol by volume, your your taxes go up to from like five percent to like 40 percent or something crazy. 
So yeah, it's yeah. it's like a huge jump, which is why it incentivizes a lot of breweries to keep their alcohol relatively low. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if you if you go over that, then they they cl- if you're a beer and you go over that percentage, I don't remember what it is. It might be ten percent. If you're a beer and you go over that amount, you're now cl- classified as a barley wine, and a barley wine is taxed at a much much higher rate. I, I took a tour of a cidery when I was in Richmond. Uh, for just for a visit and she was saying that they had to they had to she does cider in a very different style the lady who runs the cidery they do it they basically make champagne but instead of using grape juice they use apple juice and for and ferment it in the same style as you would ferment a champagne and they do it with the bottles and the riddling and all that sort of stuff um but the big issue that she had was when she went to market and she, I guess she didn't realize this or she didn't have the correct help or something like that. When they went to market, they were they were selling these uh, apple ciders at 14% alcohol, which is very, very high for a cider. Mm-hmm. And the state went, well, that's not a cider. That's an apple wine. You owe us, you know, 30% more money. And... Uh, and that and that really killed her first year of business. She said, fortunately, you know, her her investors were able to cover it cover it so she could continue. But they had to totally change their process and uh, make it so that it would come in at under ten percent, so that they could still market it as a, as a cider. And and well, she, and she was a huge like a big deal to me. well at least to me it was a big deal because she was going out into the woods in Virginia and looking for apples that they thought were extinct because during prohibition uh-huh. the feds came down into Virginia and chopped down all the trees and and got rid of all of these different apple varieties that used to exist there and so she she's been trampsing around the appalachians there looking for wild apple trees and and picking them then bringing them back to her uh orchards and getting them dna tested to see what they are uh, right so she she's a, she's like a trooper she's a hero I, actually that would be a, yeah. a good person to have on too but kind of yeah. like to sort of bring this back around earlier pepper you said that you were drinking tonight but you are not drinking a wine you're drinking something else in celebration of what today is is saint patrick's day so what are you sipping what are you sipping on tonight jameson definitely the jameson (laughs) oh that's that's good so i got victoria victoria my wife she likes uh irish cream that's like her her drink of choice and we got a new one Mm -hmm. that uh, she she likes a lot. Uh, I think she still likes uh, Bailey's Almonde the best, but I, I try to mm-hmm. you know introduce other things to her. But that was on sale for St. Patrick's Day. But what I got tonight is I chose because you said I, I'm going to butcher this pronounce pronunciation again. You said your favorites are uh, Ad, Adli, Aglianico. 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 Yeah. So I got an Aglianico from Italy. Mm-hmm. Man, I wrote I wrote down Aglianico Italian and I didn't even write down the name of it, but I think I have it pulled up. <laughs> I think I still have the it pulled up. I do. It's uh man, why do I why do I pick European wines? Because I can't pronounce this. <laughs> it's uh Donacaria Aglianico Irpin Irpinaya twenty fifteen. Uh it was it's twenty dollars a bottle at Total Wine here in Texas, but because I had a uh a twenty percent off, uh, a twenty percent off coupon or whatever. It ended up being only eighteen dollars, which is, um, or actually no, it ended up being sixteen dollars, which is not a bad, not a bad deal. I looked for an Indiana one, and they have no Indiana wines here. And I think that might be because of what we've been talking about. There, the shipping laws is makes it very difficult. But then again, yeah. you know. Texas doesn't have a lot of export laws, uh, and Texas wine is impossible to find anywhere else. It seems like, so the, <laughs> it, it may just be that, like, when the wine industries grow to a certain level, uh, they, you know, 
then you can get out to other places. Like right now, even Virginia is not available very widely. Like here in Texas, we don't get a lot of Virginias, but Virginia wine is, I think, the third largest producer or fourth largest producer maybe in the country is Virginia. And hmm. uh, and you can get Oregon, Pinot Noir pretty much anywhere, and you can get some stuff from Washington. You can get anything you want from California, but uh-huh. Vir- Virginia is fourth largest or fifth largest maybe after New York. And you can't, you just can't get get it anywhere either. So I wonder if that is yeah. because of these laws or or what the deal with that is. I, I'm going to assume it is. I where we don't get anything other than Indiana wine, California wine, yeah, and um, obviously France um, things from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever seen any wine in Indiana from Virginia mm. on shelves or or any state. Texas mm-hmm. definitely I haven't. Yeah. Um, definitely just California. So. Yeah, that's interesting. That's something I'm going to look up and find out what's well, going yeah, on with I that. Think, I think yeah, I think we're going to start looking into that a little bit more too because this is this is starting to become something that Mason, you and I bring up a lot on the show is, well, I do, I do so many, many episodes on Texas wine because I like, to, I just like to go out and look and see what's around my area. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I, I, there's nothing in Dallas, but uh, a couple of, <laughs> a couple of hours away, either down by Austin or about five hours away near Lubbock, there's a lot of wine going on. And there's, there's up by Sherman, which is an hour away. There's some, some stuff going on. That's a really new region. I'm not sure what they're doing up there, but uh, kind of going back, back to you, Pepper. Uh, another thing that I learned about you is that you are a Catholic. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. This seems to be... Yeah, we get to, we get to drink during church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, this is something that I found very interesting is that a lot of prominent libertarians in the movement mm-hmm. are Catholics. You know, we, Tom Woods, uh, Jeffrey Tucker, yeah. in, in our sort of C-level libertarian populist movement or whatever, uh, Bert Arkist, he is, he's a Catholic. Uh, Wednesday, the libertarian lemur, he's a Catholic. So this seems like a really popular thing. And for two non-Catholics, I'm, I'm a Quaker. Mason, you're agnostic, I guess? No, I'm, I'm an atheist. Atheist, but, okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing is like I, I – like as a quick aside, yeah. um, mm-hmm. don't have any problems with the how to treat other human things Jesus said um, right. and very much appreciate um, those teachings, but don't put a religious faith into them. Okay. Well, okay. well what I thought was interesting about this is, is I've noticed that there's a growing number of Catholics in the libertarian movement. Is Has your Catholic faith, has that influenced you in becoming a libertarian, do you think? Or is it just coincidental that there's a lot of Catholics that go that way? Or is, I, I, actually, I find it very interesting. That's actually something I've thought about. I actually was not raised Catholic. I was raised um, small-town, rural Baptist. Mm. Um, my, my uncles are preachers. They go, in fact, I have an uncle in, or a cousin in Ireland trying to say, Catholics. Um, <laughs> okay. But, um, <laughs> but I converted to Catholic Catholicism um, about, let's see, my son is almost 15, about 16 years ago um, when I, I met my husband. I was pretty anti Catholic when I met, obviously, I was raised very Baptist. Okay. Um, so I, I, I found my, my faith in Catholicism. It shocked the hell out of me. Um, but, um, I married my husband about five years after he got married. I converted to Catholicism. My kids were baptized Catholic. Um, I I don't. And it, that's an interesting point because Tom Wood did be um, recently become full fledged libertarian. He's always been, you know, libertarian ideology. Yeah. And now he's a card carrying member. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Jeffrey Tucker. I don't know that my Catholicism has um, definitely. It, my personal Catholic faith 
um, is more of a um, mind your own business, pray mm-hmm. for people, lead a life that um, that my God would would be proud of, and kind of just mo- you know mirror that for people instead of preaching at people. Yeah, I think also the history of the Catholic Church. You you see what that authoritarianism can do. I mean, the Catholic Church hasn't been mm-hmm. you know an angel in history. Well, that's that's and... one, that's sort of one thing that Tom Woods has introduced me to. Like my opinion yeah. on the Catholic Church has changed a huge amount since I read his book, uh, How the West, How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization, and mm-hmm. I had no idea how. Uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, fractured the churches. So there, there's oh, oh definitely there's all these different things going on because like you know I was also raised Baptist but ended up becoming a Quaker in my early twenties and uh, and very much I think my political beliefs influenced my religious beliefs. Like I was looking for mm-hmm. kind of a a church that was not evangelical and not kind of not what I perceived as authoritarian or as participating in the state. And one of the things that I've observed, because I also almost converted to Catholicism, uh, well, Byzantine Catholic, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things I kind of observed about that is that uh, it's not necessarily anti-state, but it does it does it does preach a higher authority than the state, which I think is very threatening to any statist kind of view of the state. Whereas, like when I was a Baptist. There was an American flag on the pulpit, and every day, and oh, yeah. like every Sunday, you say the Pledge of Allegiance in service, which is bizarre. Re- and respect <laughs> your president. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's very very strange. And and now from the outside of it, it's like looking at it, it's like, huh, this is really very this this does integrate very well with the state. Whereas mm-hmm. my experience in the Byzantine Catholic Church and in the and in well, it's not really. I guess it's not. I don't know what the Quakers what it would be called, but it's not a church. We we call it meeting, and we believe that all believers in Christ are the church. So, but mm-hmm. uh, but at our meeting, there because Quaker meetings are silent. There is no liturgy or anything like that, and there's no pastors. It's just quiet. So there is no state worship or any message like that. And then also in the Catholic Mass, when I would go to Byzantine Catholic Mass, there was no reference at all to the government, and it was all That's about. Yeah, it was all, you know, God bless, at the time it was John Paul, so God bless John mm-hmm. Paul, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, bless him with, you know, his holy knowledge and all that sort of stuff. And I, and it, it supersedes the government, so it, it's like a, it's almost like a counterforce to that authority. So that's one of the things that I thought, like, maybe, maybe that's something that's going on, because I've noticed that all of the liberty, especially now that I'm here in Dallas and I'm start and I'm starting to work on uh, getting a nice liberty community going together with Carr from the Friends Against Government podcast, is there's a ton of Catholics, and yeah. it, it just never occurred to me that that would be so compatible with liberty liberty until I started reading a lot of the Tom Tom Woods stuff and listening to his bonus episodes about Catholicism. It's it's super interesting. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Um, one thing that I've noticed um, um, when, when when we go to church, it, there's no mention of government. It's more of a you know we we have a prayer the prayers of the faithful um, towards the end of the mass, and it's basically you know pray for our pope, um, and then we pray for different members of our our community and our church community that are are going through issues or have had a loss in the family, different things like that, who have asked to um, be prayed for. It's not necessarily I don't, I can't remember ever hearing government or president or, or laws and, and things like that followed mm-hmm. being preached at church. Um, other than, you know, Baptist and my Baptist church, that was a big, big yeah. central thing is obey, obey your laws, obey mm-hmm. your president, obey your government, 
obey the police, um, don't question authority. Um, whereas in Catholicism, I've been told to question authority. Yeah, I've been told to think for myself. I've been told to figure things out on my own, and and that's what I've done, and it led me to Catholicism. Yeah, that I, I, that's super. That's fascinating to me. I think that that is that's something that uh, Tom Tom Woods in particular and Jeffrey Tucker also have have really gotten me interested in is this uh, this other side of Catholicism. That and I think that what it is is it's it's the the Protestant propaganda that's that's very pervasive in American culture against Catholicism right. is makes it so that you just kind of think of it as you know the uh, the Inquisition and the Crusades and all of these types of things where mm-hmm. like when you go and and read Tom Woods's book you're like oh these guys are the people who invented economics or like mm-hmm. invented the study of economics and these are the people who first started thinking about the principles of self ownership and mm-hmm. uh, and logical deduction for what's right and what's wrong rather than just like edict from on high and. We have a saint who um, wrote about um, decriminalizing prostitution. Oh, wow. Okay. And that we, we can be morally opposed to it, and we should be morally opposed to it, but these women should not be treated like criminals yeah. or men or whoever, you know, whoever's doing it. And so, so that's something that I recently learned about that, that I think it was Thomas Aquinas, I'm going to say. Oh, that, that would make total Thomas. sense because Thomas Aquinas yeah. also was the um, – he was the one who did. He was like, I can make a a uh, Aristotelian argument for the existence of God without uh, making any sort of appeal to religion. Right. And and he and he goes through it in in his treatises on like the original mover and that sort of stuff. Where he's like, yeah. you know, to, to dumb it down a whole bunch, he's like, well, if you see a ball rolling downhill, well, something had to make that ball roll down the hill at some point. And if you go back, you can say like, oh, well, it was pushed by the stick, but something must have pushed the stick, and so on and so forth. And so he says like, so logically, mm-hmm. we have to deduce that there is something out there that is infinitely it's it's infinite potential and that infinite potential Mm -hmm. is what we could identify as god from our perspective but from a non-religious perspective we'll just go back and identify it this way and this is a guy in like the 1500s or 1400s who's who's making these arguments which is super like you know we think we don't think about like how geniuses existed back then as much but uh this was a this was a true genius who was thinking about these things back then and then the uh the scholastics in spain were coming up with uh-huh. the concepts of self-ownership and uh homesteading and uh marginal utility and, and like these these types of things they're writing about it in the 1400s it's crazy uh-huh. and yeah, uh, if, yeah if you look at the uh like the way the state teaches about this it's like Oh, these ancient, you know, Romans and Greeks, they had all this, you know, learning and then nothing until the Renaissance. And then, you know, (laughs) or like maybe a brief aside about Thomas Aquinas and it's like, and you know, he was kind of addictive as well, like the younger people. Uh And you're like, and you hear that, you know, like all of these other treaties and things that he did. And it's like, I understand not, you know, the separation of church and state, maybe not necessarily teaching his religious arguments, but it's like he did a lot more than just the religious arguments and like his writing like yes there is a heavy religious emphasis on it he was a monk but Mm -hmm. there's way more to it and then it's like you know as jay was saying the scholastics and even like even during those times like the you know the advances in you know political thought and treatise and stuff like that were coming out of the muslim groups like neither Mm -hmm. are talked about (laughs) like and i bet it seems like in this the state-run schools it'd be like 
now I bet they probably teach much more about what, you know, is happening with Muslim scholars because it's like, oh, that's a favored group. Well, I'm sure that they choose a specific type. And, you know, Mason, you and I have talked about this before, too, is I've noticed this a little bit with uh, with Quakers in American history is they're kind like I remember in school, like the only thing that was really taught to us about Quakers was, oh, these are those people who think the Bible is equal to other books. And let's go ahead and move on from that. Whereas like, there, like there's a lot of other stuff going on with the Quakers. They they were put in internment camps in World War One for refusing the draft, and uh, they were tarred and feathered by the Puritans in because they were offering uh, a different type of education. Where I don't know how else to describe it, but it's like pyramid education. So it's like the teacher, like the older the oldest students would come in early in the morning, and the teacher would teach them. And then for their education to be free, they would teach then the next group and then that group would teach the next group and then that group would teach the next group and you and and they were offering this because they were like, look, all Christians need to be able to read the Bible. And the Puritans were like, no, how are they going to be indoctrinated? And, mm-hmm. uh, and like, that's not taught there. And there's a, like the, um, the one, like there's a, a Quaker, a Quaker woman. And she was, she invented like all, she was the first woman in America to have a patent and which, you know, I, I'm kind of opposed to patents, but, uh, she had a, she had a patent on like a way to like weave, uh, um, like hay into making like hats and stuff like that. So. Like she had a machine that did it. She built this machine, but that's never talked about. And the reason, though, I think that it's not talked about is because the Quakers have been consistently anti-war all the way through. Mm-hmm. And so anytime you talk about any of them, if you look into them a little bit, they're anti-war, anti-slavery. And right. And that's something that they don't really want to teach because they've got a lot of good points on – why you should be anti-war it's it's very it's a very ron paul type position where they're where they're just like yeah well a it doesn't work and b it's morally wrong yeah and i think like they also have like the heavy push of like not necessarily being against the government like you know tear it down burn it down in revolt it's just that's nice that you think that i i don't agree and i'm gonna go over here right it's kind of like the you know what i remember from school is um kind of this heavy emphasis that like the Mormons were crazy criminals and the Quakers were too, or like <laughs> sort of. And you're like, uh-huh. you look back and you're like, because they wouldn't murder people. Yeah. Well, that's basically what it was. Wouldn't yeah. bend the knee to any earthly authority. Well, there's been a like, lot of Quaker tax protesters going back to the like 16, 1700s in the United States where they just feel like, yeah, we're just not paying these. And, <laughs> and the government comes down and they're like, well, why won't you pay it? And they're like, well, cause you use the money to kill people and we're opposed to that. And right. so we just won't pay it. And they're like, okay, to jail with you. And then while they're in jail, they're like, have you heard the good word of Jesus Christ? (laughs) Have you heard the good, have you heard the good word and don't pay your taxes when you (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I think they've got, there's some guy that's doing, or he, and this is the abortion argument. Obviously I don't want to start an abortion argument, but he is opposed to abortion. And Mm -hmm. so he is not paying his taxes. And he said he's not going to pay his taxes. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I'm, I'm interested to see what comes out of that. I, I'm very interested in that one as well because it, I think it extrapolates to a lot of things. You know, as I mean, Mason, you've got a, a you know a set of moral ethics, even though you're not religious, but. Um, mm-hmm. For religious people who are anti-war, we should be able to use the same logic that this guy uses to right. not it, pay taxes. It violates my faith to yeah. kill people. <laughs> Period. Um, And so, you know, this idea that we can, you know, death penalty, you know, that's funded by taxpayers. Mm -hmm. Um, War, obviously. All kinds of things. And and that's where I I guess I should come off the record as being an atheist and and join a um, 
faith that has nonviolence as a key tenant so I can get out of paying my taxes. Um, Because (laughs) like apparently being a morally being morally opposed to murdering anyone for non-religious reasons doesn't qualify mm-hmm. you to mm-hmm. like, right. believing in human rights of being allowed to live mm-hmm. is not acceptable unless some divine being told you that well, and you believe right. yeah well but i mean i think i think ultimately we can just we can agree that like the principles of liberty whether um it comes from the small l or the big l is that People should be able to, you know, live their lives the way that they want. They should be able to buy wine across the borders, and right. <laughs> and uh, and that. But at the same time, we don't need the federal government to come in and knock heads to make it happen. We we can get the state, the people in the states, to agree to just ship it across, and the people who are preventing it are thugs, and and that is it. So I think that that's actually probably a pretty good place to end. Because I am running right. short on time, and I'm and Pepper, I also feel like we're taking up a tremendous amount of your time. Do you want to share with us anything else that's going on in Indiana as far as the wine industry goes, or as far as the Libertarian Party goes, or just anything else that you're interested in plugging? Um, I would just say uh, we, we do have our our state convention coming up here in Fort Wayne. Okay. Uh, I think it's in May, um, or it might actually be in April. I'm not sure. I'm not going this year, so <laughs> but that's coming up, and. Um, um, we, if you come to Indiana, definitely visit our wineries. We have they're popping up everywhere. Um, Oliver down in Bloomington, um, obviously Tui's up here. We've got a few up by Fort Wayne. It, it's just you know do our wine tour. It's great. If okay. you come to Indiana. Well, that sounds great. And and two E's, I'll go ahead and link to two E's in the show notes page. And, and hopefully if anybody's in the Indiana area that when, or if they're passing through, they'll stop, they'll stop by at two E's and, and have a couple of glasses of their unique wines. They're the, uh, when I was looking through the list, a lot of that stuff is not available anywhere I know of. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I really recommend people just go try it out. Even if you don't like it, it's, it's, it'll, it's an experience and it's interesting. And they also have a really great website and it looks like it's a great, property too mm-hmm. it just looks really relaxing and just a cool place to hang out yeah yeah i took a quick peek at it it, I mean, it looked like a, a very fun place and you know i'm very interested in this concord grape <laughs> wine yeah. Yeah. very uh, sweet if you like sweet wine you'll like it okay well, <laughs> well i, I think, still try it <laughs> I think, yeah i mean i think mason you're much more open to sweet wine than i am uh but i think that I would be willing to try that because I like the Concord grape flavor. It's just not what I expect from wine. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so let's go ahead and do our plugs real quick. Mason, you want to go ahead and do those? Yeah. So you can always follow us at Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Uh, See the rose and the uh, attacks on Elizabeth Warren that Jacob may be producing. Um, If you want to reach out to us, tastinganarchy at gmail.com. We do have tastinganarchy.com. We are working on having uh, more continuous information posted there and making sure the shows come up. Um, You can follow, well, not follow us, you can Listen to our friends in Liberty on a Friends Against Government podcast. Car Campbell, who is most recently our guest outside of Pepper, um, on the show. One day we'll get Bird on as well. Uh, Jacob's been on the show. Maybe I'll get to be on their show one day. And then uh, Sounds Like Liberty. Jacob and I both have made appearances on them. They're always fun if you're interested in music. Uh, friends Against Government. Um, just a roundtable of nonsense. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that really covers it. Also, uh, Pepper, you didn't put your Twitter. It's wine. It's at Wine and Liberty on Twitter. Uh, most uh-huh. of the time, I see you are retweeting a lot of really great Liberty qu- content and making comments on different things. So I think that if uh, our listeners are interested, they should go ahead and follow you as well. Uh, and then one more thing, Mason, because I don't know if I'm putting the commercial in at the beginning of this episode or not, but uh, mm-hmm. we have a new semi-sponsor, and that's Last Bottle Wines. Last Bottle Wines has a new wine every day, and it's available until it's sold out. New day, new bottle, and it's a great deal. They're only high-quality wines. If you sign up with our link, you get 10% off, and that is uh, lastbottlewine.com slash invite slash tasting anarchy and you'll get that ten dollars off your first purchase so that is it mm-hmm. from me mason anything else that's it pepper anything from you no that'll be it thank uh, you. actually outside of uh thanking pepper for joining us oh. <laughs> of course thank you for having me. Yeah, of course all right. Yeah. all right everybody stay free